Our reading tonight is from 1 Corinthians, chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarrelling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labour. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on, his, on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames." Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. This is God's word. My name's Phil. I'm on the staff here. Uh, It's great to have you with us. If you're new, if you've got a Bible, you should have one in front of you. Do keep it open and you'll find there's an outline so you know where we're going. You can take some notes. Let's pray for God's help as we look at his word together. Father God, we pray that you would uh, help us to not to long to, to do what fits in, what wins in this world, but to know the truth about you and to live for you, whatever that might mean. Father, help us to have a desire for you and your truth. And so we pray that you would shape our minds and our hearts as we look at your word together now. Amen. Look, when it's a competition between doing what's right and doing what works, what do you go for? Well, you do what's right. Everybody. Well, what when uh, what's right is to to build cars which have low diesel emissions because it's quite damaging to our health, all the sulfur dioxide and the nitrous dioxide and those sorts of things. What when you get enormous subsidies if you produce low emissions vehicles, but you can't quite make the emissions reach? What do you do if you're a reputable, well-known, trustworthy car manufacturer? As we found out this week, you cheat. You just cheat. turns out that VW is not quite as reliable as we thought. That Audi doesn't stand for Vorsprung durch Technik. It stands for 
for spewing out dirt and toxic. And, you know, we should rebrand them publicly. This is, it's pretty, it's hard not to feel cynical when stuff like that is going on. Why did they do it, though? I guess they did it because winning mattered more than doing what was right. Success mattered more than integrity. After all, integrity doesn't pay the bills. Whereas winning makes millions. But you see, the thing is, uh, we rarely face challenges like that. It's, I guess very few of us in this room will be told here, uh, this is a complete cheat, a total lie, but we'll make lots of money if we do it. Are you in? If that happens, say no. Uh, but it's rarely that obvious. But you see, the, the problem is, quite often compromises come that we just don't see. You see, to many, many good people in the 19th century living in the States, owning slaves was just what everybody did. So they owned slaves. Actually, the truth is that there were many very good, pretty honest MPs caught up in the expenses scandal. Why? Because, well, well, it's easy to throw stones at them. The truth is they were just doing what everybody did. And what, you know, the, actually, the, the expenses people pretty much encouraged them to do. They were doing what everybody did, and they were doing what was normal, because it worked. And the letter that we just had an extract read from of 1 Corinthians is written to a church in 55 AD, found itself in the middle of a culture that loved success and power. And those attitudes had started to seep into church life too. The church had started to, to basically do what worked, to look at the world and see a world that loved celebrity and success. And so the church started to just do what worked because that's what you do in Corinth. If it wins, you do it. Now, if you're new to Christchurch Mayfair, we're working through this, uh, this letter of 1 Corinthians written by the Apostle Paul in around 53, 55 AD to a church, a group of young Christians in a town called Corinth over in Greece. And Paul is writing to a church that wants to fit in with the world around it. It's a church where there was no higher compliment you could pay to a Corinthian Christian than to say, you're a Christian. Sheesh, I'd never have thought you were a Christian. You're, you're normal. That was what they wanted to hear, to know that the world out there thought they were all right. That was what mattered to them more than anything. And so they struggled to get their heads around the cross, the the center of Christianity. They struggled with trust in a man who was nailed to a cross and died, trust him for eternal life. Because in Corinth, everybody laughed at that idea. They struggle with the idea of, you want forgiveness and you want the power to change? Look to the dead man, Jesus. Because people in Corinth laughed at something as ridiculous as that. They struggle with the, you want to know what the best and wisest way to live is now? It's a life of self-sacrifice. Taking up your cross, as Jesus said. They struggle with that because everybody in Corinth said, that's nuts. Why would you do that? It doesn't work. It was at odds with the culture of success and the culture of celebrity that ran the town they lived in. Now, here's why this is relevant to us. How do churches grow? How do churches, not buildings, but churches, how do they attract more people? It's not a question they're really asking in China or in Nigeria or in Iran for all the persecution. They're growing exponentially. They're wondering, you know, what do we do with all these people? But here in Britain and in many Western countries, 
you can't escape the headlines that the, the churches are in decline, the churches are in decline, the churches are in decline. And so there's a pressure of, well, if churches in decline, are any of the churches growing? Yeah, this church over here is growing. Well, what are they doing? Do it. And so we feel tempted to, to, to look around and see what works and just jump on that bandwagon. And the danger is, like the Corinthians, we are slow to ask the question of, is this right? Does this fit with the patterns Jesus gives us in the Bible? And we're very quick just to see if it works, let's do it. It's called Christian. It works. We're in. But the Holy Spirit says in 1 Corinthians 3 that the cross is not just how we're saved. It is how we live. And it's how we do church. It's how we minister. And that actually, does it work is not the question to ask. Is it faithful to Jesus Christ and his cross is the question to ask. And so in this chapter, Paul is going to, going to turn our eyes away from the, the question of what works best around London as I look at other churches and ask instead, what fits best? What way of doing church fits best with the cross of Jesus Christ? And we'll see why it's such a good way, re, good thing to live that way as we go through. So just two, um, I'm not sure we'll get to the last verses. So really there's just going to be two points, I guess. God grows churches, ministers are just servants. So firstly, verses one to nine, God grows churches. Look with me at verses one to four. Brothers, actually there is a, or literally it's actually brothers and sisters um, because it, it covers both. And there is enormous, don't worry, we won't spend this long on every word, but there is enormous, <laughs> I promise, there's a huge encouragement, but also a big challenge just in this one word. The encouragement is that for all the worldliness and the immaturity and the immorality that we encounter in the Corinthian church, they are Paul's brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, those of us here who would already call ourselves Christians, if you're anything like me, then you know that you stuff up a huge amount and you are nothing like the man or woman that you should be. And it's a huge encouragement to see that if Paul can address adulterous, incestuous, dragging each other through the courts, fighting all the time and ignoring the poor Corinthians as brothers and sisters in Christ, there's hope even for you and for me. It's a wonderfully encouraging word, but it is also a challenging word. You see, he's addressing brothers and sisters in Christ, and they bog up royally in all sorts of ways, as we'll see throughout this letter. There are some incredibly stern warnings in 1 Corinthians, even just in chapter 3, and yet it's addressed to Christians, which means you and I, if we call ourselves Christians, need to be humble. It is very possible to have been a Christian for a number of years and be utterly wrong about some things. So we need to be humble. We need to expect that every time we come to this book, every time we hear God speak to us, we need to expect he is going to challenge me. I'm going to need to change. So be encouraged, but also be humbled. He addresses them as brothers. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let's carry on. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You're still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? 
Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? Let's pause there. Now, Paul has been um, talking about God's wisdom and maturity in chapter 2. If you look back at 2.6, you'll see, uh, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature. He says, what God says in the Bible is not nonsense. It might sound like foolishness talking about the cross, but it's not nonsense. It's just God's wisdom. And in eternity, we'll see that it's proved right. But for all their gifts and impressive abilities, he says, look, I can't address you as wise. You've not got this wisdom of God. Uh, Two words in particular shows what he thinks of them. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 1, you are worldly, literally of human flesh, contrasted in verse 1 with spiritual. In other words, he says, look, your thinking, the the way you approach life, the way you treat other people, it is not shaped by the, the Holy Spirit who lives in you. It's shaped by the attitudes of everybody out there. So you can't call yourself spiritual. You're just like the world. And they're also infants. He says, infants in Christ, verse 1. Now, sometimes that's a positive image in the Bible, to be innocent or trusting as a child. Not here. Paul established the church five years ago, and he's saying you haven't grown. Uh, the, uh, the soundproof box above you at the back, if you have a look up there, is not a panic room. Uh, we don't need one of those in church, although it can feel like that if you work there on a Sunday morning. It's the creche um, where some of the noblest, bravest and most dearly cherished brothers and sisters uh, serve on a Sunday morning looking after the babies. And if you go in there on a Sunday morning, so I'm told, um, I'm required down here. Uh, <laughs> Please don't change that, Matt. Please. Uh, If you go in there on a Sunday morning, you will find um, babies occasionally screaming, uh, lying in nappies, wanting a bottle of milk and their favorite teddy. That's as it should be. It would be a little bit odd if you went in there and found a 22-year-old man lying in a nappy, screaming, wanting his bottle and his teddy. It's appropriate for a baby, but you expect babies to grow up and Paul is saying you lot are like grown up your babies you you need to shave you should have moved on you should have grown you're not meant to stay the way you were when I left you four or five years ago his point is that it's not that you should move on from what I taught you originally about Jesus Christ the, the milk of the gospel, if you like. Now, the, uh, Colossians 2, 6-7 makes it clear that the way on in the Christian life is not away from, onto new things. It's further deeper into the truth of the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. He's not saying you should, you should have departed from the fundamentals. He's saying you never properly got those. So you, you've just not matured. You've not even got the first thing about Christianity. You, you haven't yet grasped what it means to trust in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And to know his righteousness. And to trust in his resurrection for your life. And his proof of their immaturity is in verses 3 and 4. Your divisiveness. Verse 3. You're still worldly. For since there's jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For one says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Are you not mere men? Now, Paul is a good guy, clearly. And so is Apollos. In Acts 19, we meet him as a very powerful preacher of the truth about Jesus. The danger here is not that they're trusting false teachers, people who tell lies about Jesus. The problem is they're trusting too much in good people. 
but people. That's the problem. It shows their immaturity and it sows division. It shows immaturity and it sows division. Let me explain. First, it sows division. The work of Christ is to unite us. But when I say, oh, look, I'm really with the, it doesn't matter what the teacher is. You know, John Piper, I love, you know, John Piper, he is the man. His books, you, you really need his blog. You should listen to this talk from him. When all you hear is somebody always, always, always talking about their favorite one speaker. Funny enough, it doesn't seem to happen with me, but, um, <laughs> but uh, it does, ha- you do hear it with other people, with good people. I could list also, you know, Piper, Keller, whoever. It doesn't really matter who it is. It's dangerous when people are just obsessed and fixated with that because it always inevitably divides us into our different camps. Whereas the work of Christ is to unite us. It's never healthy to just be obsessed with this one teacher and nobody else has quite got things until they've got this one teacher with you. It's never a healthy pattern as Christians. It's one of the, the good things about um, that I really liked when I joined the staff of this church was that there are different preachers as well. There's, just, there's a healthiness that we're, you don't become dependent on one figure, whether uh, someone on the internet or, or just one minister. There's a healthiness to being able to, to be taught by lots of people the same truth about Jesus Christ. But also, it leads to spiritual immaturity when they have all these different camps dividing. Why is that? Verse 5. What, after all, is Apollos and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. There is a very pointed preposition in the middle of verse 5. Look down with me. What, after all, is Apollos and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe. He's saying, look, you you came to believe in Christ through me, not in me, in Christ, just through me. I was just the vehicle, the messenger about Jesus Christ. You are not to put your trust, he says, in men or women, but in Christ. Ministers, Christian authors, theologians, bloggers, they can be a great blessing in as much as they point us to Jesus Christ. But we're not to put our trust in human beings. We grow as Christians as we develop and deepen our trust, our relationship with Jesus. But when all our talk, when all our focus is about what this person says and what this person taught and this amazing talk and that wonderful book, it's very easy for the focus actually not to be on Jesus, but on the people who are trying to tell us about Jesus. So he gives an illustration to to help us understand and to see how stupid this is. Uh, Verses 6 to 9. It's a humbling picture he gives of ministers, and it teaches us that we're pretty stupid for trusting too much in them. He says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Not many famous farmers. Old MacDonald's about the only one I can think of. He picks, he picks a very humble profession. He says, don't think too much of ministers. And he stresses, look, God assigns us, verse 5, our gifts, our ministries. God made Paul an apostle. He could have made him anything he wanted. 
And he says, verse 6, I'm just a sower. That is, he says, I planted the seed. All I did was, uh, I told you the truth about Jesus Christ, his, his death on the cross for your sins and his resurrection. That's all I did. And Apollos watered it. He taught you how to, how to move on in the Christian life, growing more in your trust in Jesus' death and living out his resurrection life. But neither Paul nor Apollos is really responsible for the growth. It's uh, if you ever as a kid, um, we, did you ever have this where you get um, sunflower seeds in a competition? It was rock and roll in my family. Uh, see who's who can grow the highest. And I think, yeah, we didn't have playstations, but anyway, it was a, and it, it was quite exciting. You try and sabotage your your sister's plant. No, I have no idea how its head got cut off during the night. Um, but you'd be wildly excited. It's six foot tall. I have made this plant. Look at it. And it's bigger than my brothers or sisters. I am amazing. Really? Try planting a pebble and making that grow. I can put the seed in the ground. I can water it. I can, if it's in a pot, move it into the sun, but I can't make it grow. I can't create life. Paul says, why are you trusting humans? I, I preached the gospel. I told you about Jesus. I, Apollos, he, he taught you more about following Jesus. But only God can give life when you're dead. Only God can enable you to trust in Jesus. Only God can grow a church bringing people to know Jesus. So why, oh why, are you so excited about... I follow this man. Oh, this person's better. He says, stop it. It's so silly. I think it's a particular danger in the internet age because we're aware of so much of what's going on all around the world. You know, oh, we must follow this person. His model of church is amazing. Uh, He started in his uh, his living room last week with four people and this week there are 15,000 of them. And he has four things beginning with G that if we did, our church would grow too. Oh, no. No, no, you want to follow this guy. He has five things that we should follow, and they start with the letters J-E-S-U-S. I mean, our church is just, and on it goes. And that's a little bit crass, but the truth is we, did, we look at these amazing stories of churches that grow, and we think, what's their secret? If, if only we could get that minister in, there'll be millions of us here next week. Or if only my friend could hear that speaker, they'd finally become a Christian. Or I've been, wow, I've been struggling with whether I should put my trust in Jesus for ages. Uh, maybe I'd, I need to hear a more famous speaker. Paul says, don't be silly. Spiritual growth is given by God. So stop worrying too much about humans. Stop worrying. Now look, there is much we can learn from others. And we'd be foolish to ignore the wisdom that God has given but we're always tempted to look for, to place our hope in human ways and human wisdom rather than just trusting God. I, there's not time to, to talk about, um, about this church. or We must move on, alas. Um, but whatever is good that has happened here is God's. He gets all the glory. It's not an excuse for being idle, mind you, before we move on. He doesn't choose the illustration of a farmer just randomly. You'll notice he stresses the word labor in verse 5. I know a couple of farmers, and they work hard. But we don't have to create life, just water and plant. 
Secondly, uh, God rewards ministry. Judgment day will reveal the truth. So we move from the farm now to the building site. And the reason he wants to do that is he wants to teach something else. The farm stresses it's all God's work. The building site stresses something different, which is if the farm was don't put too much trust in ministers. His next illustration, the building, stresses, but God works through means. So how ministers minister matters. God works through means. So actually the content of people's ministry, the message that people speak matters. Uh, Verses 10 to 15. Let's start 10 to 11. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Again, the stress is all from God. Verse 10, by the grace God has given me, that's how he gets to to serve. He laid a foundation, Jesus Christ. Back in uh, chapter 2, verse 2, he explained when he came to see them, he knew nothing. He, He just taught them. He focused on Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the foundation. Trust in the death of Jesus for your forgiveness. Uh, But now others are ministering at the church. And so he continues, verse 12, If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames." I preached Christ crucified. What about these others? That's what Paul asks. Now, I don't think we're supposed to work out what the six different building materials represent. It's a, it's a general point. Uh, gold, silver, and, spre- and precious stones, teaching that digs deeper into Jesus Christ crucified, wood, hay, and straw. Well, it's Christian. It quotes the Bible, but it's not focused on Christ crucified. In 2008, there was, a, there was an earthquake in China. Um, it's quite a big one, 7.9 on the Richter scale. Uh, over 90,000 died and over a million homeless, which seemed odd in a developed country because it was, it was wildly out of proportion with similar earthquakes around the world in developed countries. Why did so many die? One of the big reasons they came up with was that because uh, of what they called tofu buildings. Now, personally, having eaten tofu, I think it tastes like it should be a building material, but um, what they mean is tofu is a cheap substitute for something real. And they're saying a lot of the building materials, with no offense to vegetarians here, I'm going to be in trouble after this, aren't I? Um, But it wasn't me who came up with the tofu buildings thing. It's a genuine thing. Look it up on the internet. They, um, they, what what had happened was they'd used cheap, shoddy materials, second-rate materials. So the buildings looked great, but were very poorly constructed looked fantastic. Wow, how amazingly quickly they can build. We could learn from them until an earthquake reveals the truth and the buildings collapsed and people died. When we go through the fire of God's judgment, some front of the Christian magazines, millions followed their blog, grew a megachurch ministries will be revealed as hay and straw. Nothing. Just nothing. All reputation and no reality. It's a sobering thought. 
three things, three, I think, very important things as we try to work out what, what do these verses have to say to you and me. Firstly, we're not talking about salvation here, this image of judgment day in the fire. We're not saved by doing stuff for Jesus. I've got to minister enough and then I'll be saved. No, we're saved by what Jesus has done. That's what Christ crucified. That's what the cross is all about. This isn't about will you be saved or will you be condemned forever? Will God accept you and forgive you or will he reject you? This is about those whom God has already accepted. What's his assessment of the work they've done serving him? So it's not about salvation, it's about service. Secondly, he's not saying you're wasting your life unless you're a full-time minister. You know, uh, preaching the gospel endures everything else just burned up, pointless. Colossians 3.23 and elsewhere tells us uh, that God is greatly glorified by anything we've done in the name of Jesus Christ for him. And to those of us who are not in full-time ministry, which I guess is most of us here, this isn't a passage rubbishing your day-to-day work. It's a passage that says, look, when you do share the gospel, when people do ask you, what is it you believe? When you have opportunities to speak about Jesus, make sure you speak about the cross. Make sure you go for the center of Christianity. Make sure you're clear there is no way to God except through the cross. And when you encourage people, when you have conversations with other Christians, encourage them that the way on, the way to maturity is self-sacrifice, taking up your cross now and its glory later. That's what it's saying. It's saying when you do have an opportunity, minister in that way. Uh, Thirdly, uh, it's not obvious now. The main emphasis here is on uh, on those who on what happens um, sort of teaching ministry in church. Um, and it's interesting that he says it's not obvious now. It won't be revealed until judgment day. In other words, I think it looks Christian. It quotes the Bible. talks about Jesus. But he's saying there will be ministries that looked very Christian, but on judgment day it will be exposed. That although the language was gospel, Jesus, Bible, the substance was anything but Now, we need to be careful here. We need to be very careful. Be very easy to take these verses and say, any church that does things slightly different from us, wood, hay, and straw, just nonsense, waste, useless, not properly Christian. Be very easy to say that. Equally, it would be very easy for us to to pretend, oh, this isn't real. It doesn't happen anywhere. So we need to be careful. We need to be gracious. We need to be humble. But don't be naive. Paul writes about this because it's a real danger. So it's worth thinking about it. Where are we in danger? Not of abandoning the gospel entirely, but of selling out to our culture, of building ministries and churches in a way which really works in London, which really fits in with London, but doesn't actually fit in with the cross of Jesus Christ. It's a time of year when lots of people join churches. I guess a number of you here are still making up your mind about which church to join. Uh, And if you get stuck in with the church, Christians, when they get stuck in, they invest a lot of time, a lot of energy, and a lot of money into church. Don't be naive. Be careful how you invest yourself. Don't assume that every church with a cross on the building and every preacher with a Bible in his hand is doing cross-shaped ministry, the sort of ministry that will endure. There are lots of Corinthian churches out there. As ever, though, this is not an out there problem. The Bible is not designed primarily to be aimed at other people. 
The first person addressed by the Spirit in the Bible is always me. It's always my heart. It's always our church. And so we need to think not just about uh, choosing other churches, but where are we in danger? Are we in danger of the intellectual gospel? Where church is more like university. We prize ourselves on the ability and the learning, the the skill of the, the speakers, the excellent rigor of our Bible study stress, you know, the amazing uh, cultural illusions that are quoted in the sermons and all these things. Now, of course, the Bible is a book. God gave us words and meant us to study, and Christianity has always led to education, but be concerned if there is never a willingness to preach the simple, plain gospel, the unvarnished truth that sounds foolish, that the only way to God is through the death of Jesus Christ, and that's it. Beware the intellectual Christianity. Beware the, the gospel of inclusivity. The, the, the message that's pumped out that this church is a place for everybody. No matter what you've done, no matter who you are, everybody's welcome. Whoever you are, whatever you believe, everybody's welcome. Now, of course, through Jesus Christ, every category of person is welcome. And in this church, everybody is welcome. Whoever you are, whatever you believe, you're welcome here. But if there's no requirement to come through Jesus to get to God, no recognition of the need to repent, that we're not all right the way we are, we need to change if if we're to follow Jesus, then there's no real cross. And it doesn't sound like the sort of Christianity Jesus and Paul taught. Perhaps the biggest, I think, is inspirational Christianity especially in London, entertaining, uplifting services. Lots of talk about helping us achieve my potential. God is on our side and we have a destiny to shape this world and to change this city. Now, of course, church ought sometimes to be really uplifting. What could be more uplifting than knowing that the God of the universe has sent his son to die for you and loves you eternally? Nothing. So it ought to be uplifting. And Christians who uh, have been changed by God have probably done more to shape this culture in in Britain for good than anybody else with Wilberforce and the fight against the slave trade, with uh, the rights for uh, prisoners and workers, uh, Shaftesbury and Elizabeth Fry. Christians have always sought to transform culture, but, but if all the talk is only ever a victory... No talk of brokenness, no talk of denying ourselves and taking up our cross, no recognition that this life is not the time when we see everything perfect. If there is only ever celebration of success and never of faithfulness, then you wonder whether we've lost sight of the cross. Beware. Beware. There are many churches... And there is a great strong tug in this church, in my heart, to do things that are successful, that work, that fit in with our culture, that pump us full, that ignore the ugly reality of the cross. Beware. Don't invest yourself in your efforts for something that won't grow you and won't last for eternity. Choose a church, not just where the cross is believed, but where the cross shapes absolutely everything and please pray for us and help us to do that here but how wonderful in these verses to read as we close 
of a day, not just of judgment, but of reward. Do you see that? Verse 13, his work will be shown for what it is. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. And you see in verse 8, it's labor, not success, that God rewards. How wonderful is that? I read a couple of books in the last year about uh, Bletchley Park. Uh, I'm sure many will know about Bletchley Park. Country house out in Buckinghamshire. That's not what's good about it. In the Second World War, it was the home of the British um, top-secret code-breaking service. And um, if you see some of the pictures from the time, how do I put this politely? Well, you don't look at them and think, gosh, they'd have been useful on the battlefield. <laughs> uh, it's a bunch of maths professors, nothing against math professors, and crossword addicts. Um, you know, they're not the sort of people you think win wars. But the truth was, they broke every top secret Nazi code. And just along the way to help them, they built the world's first computer. It's an extraordinary story of what these bespectacled nerds did. Extraordinary. I mean, they look to all the world like the sort of people who can't achieve anything. And here's the thing. It was so top secret, they couldn't even tell their families what they were doing. And so many of them were scorned by their families. Some were even disinherited by parents because they just wasted their time doing nothing of value. Now, one of them, one of the, the key people in the building of the Colossus machine, uh, when he was asked after the war what he did, he always used to say, uh, I worked inspecting sewers. Because that's what he was told to say. But Churchill knew what they were doing. And Churchill honoured them. He called them the golden goose. The goose that laid the golden eggs but never cackled. Perfect secrecy and basically won the war. It's the truth. Today though, it's all been declassified. And today they are honoured. And today, uh, grandchildren who wondered why on earth their grandparents had never helped to fight Nazism now know that their grandparents were crucial to the victory. See, many of us, we look around and we don't feel like we're much use, not on the battlefield, but in the Christian life. We don't feel we have any great gifts that could be really useful in the great cause. Not, not, a, not a world war, but the great war against evil. As the Lord Jesus has invaded this world and brought the power of the gospel and of life, we feel pretty useless. But the truth is, if we are plodding along, taking the opportunities we have to proclaim the Jesus Christ to the cross, encouraging ministries, supporting ministries that proclaim the cross, then one day we will walk through a fire and we will feel like we had nothing to offer. But as we emerge from the fire, we will see a great crown of gold and diamond and jewels which the Lord Jesus Christ, our captain and king, will place on our heads and give us to wear for all eternity for our glory. Christians, we are people of the cross. We follow a Jesus who is despised by the great and the good of this world and who is seen as a failure and a loser by this world. So don't expect, don't expect his pattern of how to grow spiritually to be one which fits in with the culture of success in London. But God can and God is growing churches, so just stay faithful. Proclaim the Bible. Speak about Jesus Christ and him crucified. The day is coming when God will reveal and God will reward. And on that day, 
you will be so thankful that you were a Bletchley Park sort of a Christian rather than a VW sort of a Christian. Much better to have been ignored and seen as nothing in this life, but honoured by the king of the universe than to have seen to be great in this life and revealed to be nothing. God's eternal reward will make everything worth it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who rewards faithful ministry. Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom, that we wouldn't be foolish, that we wouldn't uh, get distracted by things that sound so plausible and uh, fitting in London, but actually are, are not built on the cross. Father, please would, uh, would you help us to invest ourselves in something that will last forever. We long to, to be people whose, whose lives matter. And so we pray that you would give us wisdom. And we pray that you would help us as a church uh, not to wander, not to drift. We pray that you would keep us faithful. Father, our hearts are deceitful and we are foolish, but we pray that you would be merciful and you would help us so that your son is glorified and that many might find life through Jesus Christ, even here. Amen.